You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. What's up, members of the jury, and happy Freedom Friday. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. On today's episode, we will be doing a trial breakdown. And as I said before, in the universe of criminal defense, this trial breakdown is what some will seem as the pinnacle of cases and trials because it has one of the most serious types of consequences uh, that exist in the criminal justice field. Today, we're going to sit down with a private defense attorney who is going to break down his trial of his client who was charged with murder. And as we know, murder most often comes with a potential consequence of 25 to life, and even in certain states, the possibility of the death penalty. So regardless of the facts, just the consequences alone put a pit in every lawyer's stomach. And to navigate through those types of cases are stressful, meticulous, and require a lot of collaboration and experience. And so fortunately with us, we are going to sit down with an incredibly experienced attorney, one who has had seen cases from both sides of the aisle, and he is going to educate us as to how he was able to accomplish such a fantastic accomplishment. And so joining us today is Mark McKinney. Mark, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Yeah, sure. Mark McKinney. I practice in Muncie, Indiana, home of Ball State University. I've been practicing law since 1991. Uh, Did about 15 years in our local uh, county prosecutor's office, trying everything from traffic offenses all the way up to death penalty cases. After 15 years, moved into back into private practice uh, and have been doing that for about 13 years now, um, 12 and a half. So lots of experience, probably tried over 150 cases total over the years and uh, to jury trial, all, uh, all felony cases. I, I still do public defender work. Uh, I have done public defender work for uh, the last 12 years and uh, I enjoy it. Uh, takes it's a here in in Delaware County where I practice. It's a, a contract basis, so it's it's sort of a part time gig. You get paid a flat fee, and and you do a certain number of cases every year. So uh, that's sort of that's that's my background. I love talking with more experienced attorneys, and and still seeing how kind of giddy they are to to talk about what they're doing. And it just gives me such hope and aspiration as a younger attorney to know that even down the road, um, there's still a way to have love and passion and excitement for the type of work that we do and hoping and aspiring for the better uh, outcome of a criminal justice system in whole. And not to mention, uh, I love the fact that you're currently in the Hoosier State. That's where I'm originally from. And so I love always being able to connect back to my roots. Like most of my guests nowadays, I was able to connect with Mark online. Um, and so if you would love to follow us, so we're uh, available on all social media platforms at Members of the Jury. Uh, we love to connect with different guests. Please let me know if you would like to be a guest on the show or if you have any ideas for episodes, and we'd love to follow up and connect with you. So Mark, get us into this case. Um, you know, I was able to see some of the little bit of the preliminary paperwork, but I really wanted to save myself in speaking to you to kind of learn uh, directly from from the source, uh, why don't you just take us to the initiation of the case? Let us know what the charging document looked like, all of the charges your client were facing as you ultimately decided to take this case to the box. It started out, uh, I mean, the event uh, was a early morning hours in, in the fall of 2019 outside of a local bar. Uh, my client uh, was a designated driver for a, a young friend of his who had just turned 21. And he he got off work, met these his young friend and, and a cousin actually who had been out celebrating already. Uh, met them at a bar. My client basically was a designated driver, uh, so he was chauffeuring the other two around. 
they made it to a couple of other bars before ending up uh, back where they started. At closing time, about three o'clock in the morning, the young man who had been celebrating was basically passed out unconscious, asleep, uh, whatever, however you want to describe it. But uh, uh, he was done. <clears throat> so my client and his cousin uh, basically picked up their friend and, and walked him out to the car. The entire incident outside in the parking lot was actually caught on uh, a security video. It was kind of a grainy video, so you, you didn't get a lot of detail, but you could kind of get the flavor for what was going on. As my client helped his friend into the front seat of his car, um, his, his cousin had already gotten into the back seat. It was a two-door sedan. My client walks around to the driver's side, starts to get in. Uh, there was an individual in the parking lot who had come over acting as though he wanted to assist. It seems from the video, at least very uh, congenial. At one point, this unknown individual pats my client on the back as they sort of unload the, the young man into the front seat. When my client gets around to the passenger side, uh, for some unknown reason, this individual basically grabs hold of the frame of the door of the car uh, and the car hood itself and kicks the young man who's passed out in the front seat right in the face. After that kick, he tries to load up and kick again, kind of loses his balance, and then just starts throwing haymakers uh, on this poor kid who's passed out in the front seat. Uh, my client jumps out of the car, runs around. At that point, this individual who's attacked the front the the front seat passenger sucker punches my guy in the face, uh, kind of staggers him, and the melee is on. Now everybody who's left in the in the parking lot sort of gathers around, and my client gets knocked to the ground. Uh, he is encircled by a number of individuals. He's kicked. He's punched. Uh, ends up with a broken nose, black eyes, concussion. And the bouncer comes out then, uh, comes out of the bar, kind of gets everybody separated. The, 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 there's jawing going back and forth. There's talking, some pushing, some shoving, some punches are attempted to be thrown. And my client and, and uh, the young man who had, after being kicked and punched, actually had, had been able to get out of the car and engage at least somewhat in the, in the uh, festivities in the parking lot. They get back in the car. They start to pull out. My client realizes uh, his cousin is not in the car, so he pulls up by the front door to let his cousin in. At that point, one of the individuals who was involved in the melee approaches the driver's door. He leans in, tells my client, it's not over, I'm going to kill you. My client stomps on the gas and turns the wheel to try and get away. When he does so, his attention obviously is focused on the, the, the window here, uh, he, he runs into an innocent bystander who is in the parking lot. Um, that guy flips up uh, over the hood, hits the front windshield, tumbles back down, and runs off. When the car lurches forward, the individual who has just threatened Aaron at the, at the window falls down. He is over twice the legal limit, alcohol. Uh, we don't know if he just fell because he was drunk. He pulled off balance because he was reaching in the car when it lurched forward. We don't know. But Aaron now sees this guy flipping in the air, kind of has the oh shit reaction, puts the car in reverse and backs up to get away, to get out of there. And when he does so, runs over the individual who had come to his window uh, and threatened him ultimately resulted in that individual's death. Aaron then takes off out of the parking lot. He's chased by another vehicle that uh, fires shots at their car as they're leaving the scene, ultimately flattening one of their tires. Um, he gets to a, a friend's house, drops the young man off who had been celebrating his birthday. And the next thing he knows, it's six o'clock in the morning and he's 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 gone unconscious as a result of his injuries kind of wakes up behind the wheel of his car and has no idea what has happened. So they in, preliminarily charged him with two counts of aggravated battery, which uh, in Indiana is a level three felony, kind of middle of the road. I think uh, two to 12 is the range of sentencing on the level three, if I, if I remember correctly. 
one count of leaving the scene resulting in death and one count of reckless homicide. So that's the that's the original charges that he is faced with. And then, let's see, three months, about three and a half months later, the state decides to up the charges. Uh, they charge him with murder. In Indiana, 45 to 65 is the range of penalty on murder. Uh, an aggravated battery, leaving the scene of an accident times two. So we've now got level the the uh, murder, level three aggravated battery, and two level fours leaving the scene of an accident. So that kind of gets us to, you know, the initial proceedings. Originally, on the, the, the original charges, he had bonded out. Uh, so I'd remained out on bond for three and a half months. When the state upped the charges, they issued a, a new arrest warrant. Took him back in. We had a, a pretty good battle over bail uh, in Indiana. Murder is one of those cases. One of those cases where you're not automatically entitled to bail, but if you can show that the state's case is uh, particularly weak, uh, you are then after an evidentiary hearing, basically a mini trial, you're entitled to be to have bail. Uh, so we did that. The judge actually allowed uh, Aaron to post bail, uh, and so he thankfully remained out on bond until we tried the case almost three years later. Yeah. And, and that was something I had a question about too, when I had seen some of the initial pleadings of the paperwork. And so, yeah. And I'm, and you also answered one of my other questions was if anything had happened kind of in the interim between the initial charges and the amended complaint. And it sounds like maybe there, it was just their interpretation of their uh, evidence. Cause you didn't ha- already go to prelim or anything, right? Yeah. We don't, we don't have a preliminary hearing in Indiana. So oh, wow. it's uh, okay. the, the the prosecutor prosecutor files what we call a probable cause affidavit, um, and that's just a sworn affidavit laying out basically their best case scenario. You know, in this particular case, they didn't reveal to the the court that this was you know the end result of a, a melee in a parking lot. They didn't reveal to the court that uh, my client had been attacked, had been stomped had been threatened. None of that was in the probable cause affidavit when they decided to up the charges. So when that came out at the bail hearing, I think it had a pretty good impact on what the judge's ultimate decision was. And I think that highlights such a good purpose, quite frankly, of why we have the criminal justice system that we have, because you're entirely right. You know, when I first read some of the initial paperwork, it's like very one-sided. It's obviously from the police officer's point of view and their most powerful witnesses. And then that you hear it's on video. And I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, if this were the initial paperwork that I got on a case, like I would not be too overjoyed. <laughs> but then in hearing, in hearing, you know, all of the events that you say, how they transpired, I could totally see now how, you know, even despite in face of those objective facts and witnesses, how there's a still another side to the story. And, and so I think that this already is starting off to be just a beautiful, beautiful example of why uh, our right to go to jury trial is so important and why we have public defenders and private defense attorneys as part of that system are such a valuable uh, component to that. So we just heard basically that now they have upped the charges to some of the most serious level felonies possible in Indiana. Based off of that representation, I can't imagine that there was too much of a negotiation as far as, you know, realistic negotiations. And and so the case moves on to trial. Take us to leading up to the trial. Yeah, there's very little. You're right. Very little negotiation whatsoever. I mean, those those negotiation sessions really uh, amounted to me telling the prosecutors, look, you've overcharged us. Just look at the security video. And while my client may be guilty of leaving the scene of an accident uh, that resulted in death, uh, he had a good reason to do that. He was had been threatened. There were multiple individuals that were involved in the melee that, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning. He has no idea who it is that kicked him, stomped him, threatened him. He has no idea. Just trying to get the hell out. Um, This clearly was not any kind of a premeditated or knowingly or intentionally uh, didn't knowingly or intentionally kill anyone. This literally was an accident, a tragedy for sure, but just an accident. Um, and, and the prosecutor's office just would have nothing to do with it. 
they they just they took the the stance that well we're going to let the jury tell us what they think it is. So we we just geared up for trial. Uh, we took our time. We took we talked to our witnesses. There were a number of eyewitnesses. Uh, of course, in the bar parking lot at three o'clock in the morning, everybody's story is going to be a little bit different. It was a real good example of why eyewitness testimony is not necessarily the best evidence for for anybody. You know, everybody's story was different. Everybody's vantage point was different. Everybody heard things a little bit differently. Uh, so there was a lot of there were a lot of questions, a lot of questions. Well, and I can only imagine the type of reliability of your witnesses that you're getting from, you know, more or less college students at three in the morning, intoxicated in a dark parking lot um, with individuals that they know. You know, there's going to be so many different variables that partake in those individual stories. And so I think that's an excellent part and how why it was it sounds like a good investigation strategy to try to get as many stories as possible and from different vantage points. Yeah, no, ultimately, you know, one of the, at least in my mind, one of the bigger factors here was uh, the individual who started the whole thing, right? The guy that comes up to the door and kicks the young man in the face. Ultimately, we were able to identify who that was. The police, I believe, knew, uh, but hadn't done anything until we brought his identity to their attention. And then they end up charging him with a misdemeanor battery, actually two counts of misdemeanor battery, which subsequently get dismissed with no explanation. Um, the guy never even hired a lawyer, uh, just misdemeanor charges of, of two counts of battery that end up getting dismissed with no no explanation whatsoever. And then at trial, they didn't even subpoena him to testify. Well, yeah, well, that's why they dismissed the case because that, that plays into your argument. So yeah, um, that the, so many interesting facts. Like going into this trial then, obviously, you know, we've talked about the, the type of magnitude that it has. I, in hearing that rendition of your story, it has to be one where I think you're really aligned with your, your client and, and could see how he definitely got into that position and how that could amount to, you know, basically acquittal of these charges. But despite all that, what did you feel like your biggest hurdle or obstacle was going to be going into the trial? Because as we know, once the trial starts happening, our hurdle becomes something way different than what we anticipated. So we'll get to that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, uh, the, the biggest hurdle is the bottom line. You know, somebody got killed. Yeah. Um, and it was it, it wasn't. Uh, a particularly gruesome crime scene. I mean, I've seen way worse, yet the average citizen who sits on a jury has certainly never seen an individual who's been run over by a car. Right. And we, you know, we had the the innocent bystander who he suffered some, he had to have a, a knee operated on. I mean, thankfully, um, that really was the extent of it. He had some bumps and bruises and ended up with like a torn meniscus or something. So uh, what looked really bad um, in, in the video, he actually didn't suffer too bad of an injury. And so that I really was most afraid of the pat the 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 emotions of the jury and and, and them not following the law in Indiana, we have a pretty strong self-defense statute. Uh, we also have available to us uh, an accident defense. Um, and, I, and I felt very strongly that both of these applied for my client. You know, he's exercising self-defense and trying to flee the scene and he accidentally runs over uh, the guy who's laying on the pavement. There's no way he could have seen the car didn't have a backup camera. It sits very low to the ground. The the the, the side windows and are are pretty narrow. So there's and I actually got one of the police officers to admit that yeah, there's no way if somebody's on the pavement anywhere near this car, uh, there's no way you could have seen it. Um, so that's sort of the 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 scenario heading in. I, I felt like in all likelihood, my client was going to get convicted of the leaving the scene of an accident. Uh, because in Indiana, you have an, you have an obligation uh, when there has been an accident to stop and call the police and report it. And if you can't do so immediately because it's unsafe, then you're to do that uh, as soon as practicable 
uh, once you are safe. And my client very clearly never called 911. You know, he, he dropped uh, his friend off. Uh, and then because of the, the concussion situation, you know, passed out basically at the at the wheel of his car and didn't wake up for hours later. So I, I, I felt very strongly about the murder that, that that really wasn't going to be a likelihood of the conviction. But I did feel like it, he was probably going to get convicted of the other. I just wanted to make sure that the jury didn't allow their their. Uh, emotions to overcome the the common sense and the the applicable law, you know. And then, uh, frankly, one of the biggest developments pre-trial, we start the trial on a Monday, Friday afternoon, right before the court closed for business. The prosecution dismissed the two leaving the scene charges. No explanation, no reason for doing so. Just filed a motion to dismiss. So now all of a sudden, I don't even have to worry about the crime that I think he might actually have committed. Um, all I've got to focus on is the homicide, the murder, and the aggravated battery. Yeah, I have an interesting question about that. Then when I'll circle back to, cl- to closing, because I, I, I thought that the route that I thought that they were going to go were to be to kind of connect it to. Before you guys get into your opening statements, was there really any eliminate evidentiary battles uh, that you had to put a lot of emphasis or focus on, or was it really just the kind of a, the factual dispute in this case? Yeah. The state filed a, a large number of motions in limine, most of which we didn't even really fight about. Honestly, you know, that the facts, the video sort of sp- spoke for itself. Uh, and the argument was uh, interpreting that video, you know, that the state's argument was, my guy had been beat up. He was pissed off because he'd been beat up and he intentionally ran over the decedent and intentionally hit the guy who was the innocent bystander, even though he had nothing to do with anything. I think that's actually a great segue like to really kind of expand on that for their, the state's opening statement. You know, like you were saying how initially in their probable cause pleadings, they really didn't emphasize the whole fight. Did they kind of stick with that strategy in their opening statement? Yeah, very much so. I mean, their their argument to the jury was uh, the fight was over. As soon as the bouncer came out, broke everybody up, my client and his friend were able to get into the car, that at that point, the fight's done. There's no more imminent threat, which is the requirement in Indiana to, to use deadly force in self-defense. You have to have an intimate imminent threat of serious bodily harm or, or death that that imminent threat had ended and he should have just driven off rather than tried to pick up the cousin uh, and then ultimately ended up driving into this crowd so they're basically alleging that he was somehow the aggressor the threat was over and he was not entitled to exercise a self-defense and do you feel like that's was their focus because they were trying to establish that, you know, premeditation intent for their murder charges? Yes, absolutely. So then when it was your opportunity to provide your opening statement, you know, was that something that you like really specifically attacked and really laid out of where the case was going to go or try to just play back and really make the prosecution do the their burden? I very rarely will take the latter approach. I like to put my cards on the table. Uh, I like to tell the jury what I think the evidence is going to show them. If there are some weak points to my argument, I like to lay that on the table too. I don't, I, you know, I've always believed that in order to be an effective advocate, first, you have to believe in your case. You know, if you're, if you're just full of bullshit, the jury is going to see that. But if you believe in your case, then you tell the jury here, Here's what I believe the facts are, right? And, you know, maybe we have a problem here or maybe we have a problem here. However, overall, you know, this isn't a murder case. Uh, Here's what it is. And I I had a, you know, I had a pretty good picture of my client with his face. I mean, blood all over his face and in his eyes and his eyes are already turning black. And and so I, I had a nice piece of physical evidence to show the jury just how badly he'd been beat up. So I felt pretty confident about that. And that picture was something that you displayed during your opening. I did. 
Okay, and it was. How did you did you feel? Did the prosecution lay out any visuals in theirs? No, and I, I, you know, I thought that maybe they would use the the video, the security video during the opening, but they didn't. I mean, they had some PowerPoint slides about the law, but uh, for the most part, it was a it was sort of your standard. You know, here's what we think the case is about, and and just went from there. And so, and I'm and I'm wondering, like, you know, especially since you had that prior prosecutorial experience of prosecuting a murder case, do you feel that that that's became very valuable to you and your practice now as you are now on the other side? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think having experience on both sides of the courtroom is extremely beneficial. The prosecutors that I see that are most effective are those who have had some private practice experience of, uh, ahead of time, so have represented defense attorneys or defendants. Uh, and vice versa, I think the most effective defense attorneys are those who have had some prosecutorial experience as well. You know how you know how prosecutors think. You know how prosecutors approach and prepare a case. Uh, you know how they've been trained. You know the officers. Um, those things can't. You just can't underestimate how valuable that experience has been. And I can see that how that plays a, a vital role, especially with like as we're I'm seeing how you're connecting really where they're trying to maneuver their evidence to especially get that overcharge of the murder with the required intent thing. So that's super helpful little nugget that I appreciate learning from you. Um, let's go into the to the prosecution's case in chief. Um, you know, I imagine that they're, especially in a murder, they're calling a lot of, you know, science um, and forensic evidence that really isn't being disputed here, what it sounds like. So, but it sounds like the biggest contention is really the intent, at least from the defense's point of view. So why don't you break us down where the prosecution really spent a lot of their time as it relates to that um, in their case in chief? Was it with some of the bystanders? Did they try to highlight the video? Was it some of the police work? Yeah. So as far as the science goes, obviously they had the forensic pathologists come in and and testify about cause and manner of death. And they put lots of gruesome pictures up on the big screen for the jury to see. Um, They had an accident reconstructionist uh, that came in and spent a, a, a whole afternoon talking about uh, wheelbase of the vehicle and the tire tracks. And, um, you know, it was a, a, they made an error with this particular witness because uh, I don't know if he spent a lot of time examining the actual security video, but the testimony that he provided about where the decedent was at the time he got ran over and how he was run over actually didn't match up to the security video. So, you know, it made it easy in closing argument for me to just say, look, you you shouldn't even don't even give that guy's testimony any credibility. You know, there was there were some tire tracks in a field next to where my client um, passed out behind the wheel of his vehicle. Um, And they tried to argue that these he was driving through this field, this bean field, in order to get rid of any blood or human tissue evidence that may have been on the undercarriage of the car, right? And then testified about these tire tracks and, and the, 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 the pattern and what his, what his conclusion, his expert opinion was with regard to what was going on in that field. And, and I kind of said, all right, where's the pictures? You know, well, you can't take pictures of tracks through a bean field really because i'm pretty sure most law enforcement agencies anymore have a drone that you can send up and take an overhead picture and he kind of went uh, uh uh yeah I, we didn't do that you know i mean he just he was just it, it, it was like i said it was easy in closing to just discount his testimony completely so then we move into sort of the eyewitnesses right we have two bartenders that came running out one of the people in the in the parking lot when the fight broke out came running into the bar said hey call the police there's a fight going on the bouncers coming out so you got two bartenders um you've got the 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 innocent bystander that, that flipped through the air that testified and that really they they called my client's cousin 
who he was, you know, pulling up to to help out. And then they called they called the young man who who had got beat up. Um, and that that really was the extent of the testimony. And the the bartenders uh, were inconsistent in their stories. Of course, the cousin and the young man in the front seat of the of the car that got attacked uh, were certainly testifying uh, in support of my client and the fear that they were all in um, and the concern that they had for their own lives. Um, and then I felt like that really it, it kind of bolstered my defense throughout. You know, I, in the end, the fact that they didn't call the guy who attacked uh, the young man, there was another female who appeared from the security video to have been with the attacker. They didn't call her, even though they were able to ultimately identify her. They didn't call either one of those as witnesses. Uh, they didn't call the bouncer. Uh, so I called the bouncer in my case in chief. And he was also very supportive or corroborative of uh, the story that I was weaving uh, for the jury. Uh, he talked about the threat that occurred at the window. He 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 saw the the guy at the driver's side window that that he basically because he was on the other side of the car. He said he just disappeared when the car lurched forward. So and and he's he very clearly was an unbiased witness with no connection to anyone. Hadn't been drinking. I mean, he was maybe one of our better witnesses. So it sounds like their strategy was really to call a lot of the like aftermath players to really paint the picture as if like, oh, the first incident wasn't really that bad. Things had died down. And then your client went on this vehicular rampage, just barreling down anybody in sight. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. Okay, so then, I mean, what was your during your cross examinations? Well, let me ask you this first. Despite them doing that strategy, I imagine they they had certain. Were there any points that you felt that you really needed to address or kind of rebut? Despite that type of imagery that they were trying to create during through their witnesses, like on your cross examination. I think, as far as the eyewitnesses go, uh, all I all I really did was point out the inconsistencies, uh, really lock them in to the differences in their testimony, the differences of the, you know, there are some things that, that one of the bartenders said that she heard or that she saw that the other bartender who's standing literally right next to her as they watched this whole thing unfold didn't see or hear. So I just, I, I really tried to focus my cross on emphasizing where their stories differed. Were you able to elicit the main fact that there was essentially this imminent threat at your client's window through any of the state's witnesses, or was that something that ultimately had to come out through your witnesses in your case in chief? Yeah, so one of the bartenders, um, I, I did get her to admit that she heard someone say, I'm going to kill you. Uh, she couldn't say where it came from. She couldn't, she was confused on which direction it might have come from. Um, but to, to get her to admit that was a pretty big moment in the trial, I felt. Well, and I would have to agree because it's again my readings of the initial pleadings. It was like some of the pr very initial interviews of police work were her almost reciting that she, again, that the presumption that the police were trying to create was that she heard your client say, I'm going to kill you and then subsequently hit the guy. So if you were able to basically reframe that type of testimony without, you know, it's being consistent with what she said, but just with a reframing, right. The defense's point of view from the police's point of view, I would agree that that, that had to be a huge moment. So that's awesome. And then I, I put my client on the stand. Yeah, well, I was going to assume that. So in Indiana, do you have an opportunity to make a motion for dismissal after the prosecution rests their case? Yeah, we call it a, a directed verdict. Yep. OK, just make sure it's the same uh, uh, verbiage as same here. And so, you know, we obviously make those um, in certain cases. And it sounds like at this point, they kind of the prosecution had kind of self did that to themselves with regard to some of the charges. Right. At, at, at my understanding. Right. That's what you said. Yep. And so then at the time that they rest their case, what were essentially the, the final charges that you were addressing at, with your case in chief and then ultimately at closing? Yeah. So we, it was, we were left with just murder and, and the aggravated battery. So killing, 
killing the guy who fell down and then the aggravated battery on the guy that flipped through the air. Okay, got it. And so, yeah, we felt, so you, you called, you said the bouncer, and I'm, I'm assuming that you spent most of the time with just your client? Yeah. Yeah, he, he took uh, several hours of the last day. Was that something that your client wanted to do? Yes. Okay. From the from, from the beginning? Yeah. Oh, yeah. From the very beginning, you know, you, obviously, you, you, don't, you can't make your client testify. Uh, you can't keep him from testifying if he wants to, but... Um, you know, over the years, I've seen that it is very, very hard to make a self-defense argument unless the jury hears from the defendant themselves. You know, unless that unless that individual can explain to a jury why I felt that I had to defend myself, I think it's very difficult. Um, it's possible, but I think it's very difficult. The jury's always going to, the jury's always going to want to hear, obviously, from the defendant, but in a self-defense case, particularly, uh, unless you just got a real problem defendant, I think you almost have to put them on. And my client, my client was a great witness. Um, he's, he's well-spoken. Uh, he was, uh, very emotional at all the right points. Uh, he controlled himself very well under pretty intense cross-examination from the prosecutors. Even when the prosecutors got heated, uh, he managed himself very well. I was going to ask about that. What um, what was the prosecution's tactic with your client for their cross-examination to really try to elicit out of your client that he intended to do this? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the prosecution spent a lot of time yelling in this trial, yelling at, at even you know, as some of their witnesses, uh, certainly at my at my client, their their cross examination, they they did did everything they could to try and shake him off of his version of the events, uh, trying to to make him look like you know he's just lying, he's he's just trying to save his own ass. This wasn't at all how it went down. He was pissed. He was angry. He's the one that said, I'm going to kill you. And they, they just couldn't shake my client. He, he did great. That's fantastic. Let me ask you this then, um, you know, because it obviously was something that seemed to stand out to you with regards to the prosecution's demeanor. Do you think that that was something that played some any kind of either small or big role with regards to the jury and their kind of interpretation of everything? Because, you know, that they're obviously hearing all the evidence, but then they're also seeing, you know, the attorneys perform and hearing how they say, do, do you think that that their demeanor was also potentially picked up on? Yes, absolutely. We got, you know, we don't in Indiana, we don't necessarily have an opportunity to talk to the jury after the verdict. Um, they are instructed that once the, the verdict is read, their job is over. They no longer I have to talk to anybody about the case. They can if they want to. Um, and so we followed up uh, with a couple of the jurors and then, and they certainly indicated that they didn't appreciate sort of the loud and aggressive style of the prosecutors that they felt like they were trying to compensate for a weak case by being loud, basically. We normally hear that as that's our job as defense attorneys. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Nice to when the shoes on the other foot, and, and that's something as a you know as a trial attorney you have to pick up on if you if you can yeah. if you can if you see that if you see uh, that the jury is not reacting well, uh, you know, and and so I went the other way, and, and I I can be pretty loud and and an asshole in court and very combative. And I I went completely the other way and 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 tried to just be as calm and um, you know mellow as I, I could possibly bring myself to, just to sort of offset you know the the demeanor that they were they were showing. Yeah, that's that's one of the skill sets that I'm still working on. You know, trying to catch uh, more, yeah, it's hard. more bees with with honey than vinegar because I'm full full of a lot of vinegar, piss and vinegar right now in in, <laughs> in my early days. So 
it won't go away. You, you'll learn to control it a little bit better, but it won't go away. Yeah, that's, I think that's that's good. That's in the spirit of what we do. Um, okay, so yeah. so we're at closing. You know, you, you feel like you just got done doing your case in chief. Was there anything that the prosecution really deviated from or focused on anything different now that the evidence has come out than they did in their originally in their opening statement? Yeah, really. So in Indiana, the prosecution goes first in closing, then the defense gets up, and then the prosecution has the opportunity for the final word we call rebuttal. I think I think that's the case in I so I thought that that was the case in every state. I was in law school, just a little quick side note. I was in law school on a doing a mock trial competition, and it came time for the closing, and I I was the plaintiff in this civil case. So I was getting ready to go first, but I was going against this team from uh, Philadelphia, where I guess in Philadelphia, the defense goes and then the prosecution goes. And so we had this argument about who was going to go first, because where we were from, it was different. Um, but we were doing this <laughs> national rules. And so that was the my first experience yeah. of realizing where it wasn't universally prosecution, defense, and then an opportunity for rebuttal. So that's interesting. I'm glad to learn that as that Indiana is also one of the states that falls into that. But so far, Philadelphia is the only state that I know of that does it any differently. So, but yeah, continue. Yeah. So, I mean, as a defense attorney, rebuttal is just like the worst possible 10, 15, 20 minutes of the entire trial, right? Because you're just getting beat up and you have no opportunity to respond whatsoever. But in the in the prosecutor's first in, in their closing argument, uh, they played the video a couple of times and had picked up on something in the video, uh, or at least they argued they picked something up in the video that I hadn't seen. And it was it was literally a glint off of uh, one of the the hubcaps, the wheel covers that they were trying to argue proved my client turned the wheel into the decedent. And when they got done, when, when the close, that closing was finished, I had a real pit in my stomach. Um, for the first time in the trial, I thought, Oh shit. Um, I, I didn't see that. Nobody who watched that video ever saw that. And I sort of had a moment of panic, took a, took a minute to, to sort of gather myself um, before I got up. But it was it was a moment of, of feeling pretty bad. Uh, yeah, I could imagine that, it, especially because I'm assuming the video is in evidence. And so even though it wasn't that wasn't it wasn't an aspect of the video that was maybe testified to, you can't even make the objection like facts, not in evidence since the video is in evidence right. and that's just their argument as to what's happening yeah. on the video. So that is actually yeah. pretty crafty. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was good. It was good. And I, I, it caught me off guard for a moment and I really had to sort of rearrange a part of my clothes to, to address that. Um, and you know, we had, uh, we had broken the video down into, uh, moments in time and had numbered each of them um, and asked the jury to kind of count in their own heads as they went almost frame by frame through that that video. And I think that was a pretty effective way to do it because after after all the closing, very pretty quickly into deliberation, they asked to have the uh, have access to the video again uh, so they could watch it and they could control. Um, how they move through that video. So one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about with regards to the prosecution's closing as it related to what we were talking about earlier with the dismissed counts. Um, in, in California, one of the things that I think prosecutors really like to rely on when they can in their closing arguments is when individuals you know, flee from scenes because oftentimes they connect that to what they have a jury instructions on the consciousness of guilt. Is that something that played a role? And that's why I was confused that they would dismiss that charge because I was thinking that they would argue, oh, he fled the scene because he had this consciousness of guilt. Right, absolutely. And and uh, in Indiana, they've outlawed that particular instruction. Oh, good for the Indiana. Yeah, right. You, so you can't get that. You can still make the argument okay. that uh, fleeing from the scene may be considered consciousness of guilt, but you don't get the instruction anymore. That's huge. Um, okay. Yeah, it it really was. Uh, it was huge. 
And they still they still argued that, of course. You know, you you fled the scene, you hid the car behind a fence row, right. you drove through the bean field to to try and wipe the blood off because you knew you were guilty. Um, they absolutely did that. But at the same time, uh, we have video of this SUV chasing my client out of the parking lot and off down the street a short ways. And both my client and the front seat passenger testified about the gunshots. Um, you know, it, it's that's pretty pretty strong evidence, I thought, uh, for justifying why you would continue to drive and then perhaps try to hide at least for the time being, um, because you don't know if those people are still chasing you. You don't know when they stopped or where they stopped or if they followed you to the house. You have no idea. Yeah, especially when you're dealing with a road rage type of, of scenario at that point, once it escalated from a bar parking lot brawl. So uh, I, I think that that sounds like a lot of good defense rebuttal points. Well, you know, what what did you feel was one of your most successful points in your closing argument? And specifically, how did you recover from that, that hubcap argument that the prosecution made? Basically, I argued the, the video spoke for itself that what the prosecutors were claiming was shown in that security video didn't exist and play it back and forth as many times as you like you are going to see that at the moment in time where decedent leans into the car and my client testified that you know he leaned in said i'm going to kill you and grabbed for the steering wheel and that's what caused the, the the tires to turn it wasn't any conscious effort on my client's part um and that it was consistent with you know, somebody from the outside leaning in and grabbing the steering wheel, which would pull to the left. If he's falling again, that's going to pull the wheels to the left. So the 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 what you saw on the video and the testimony of my client was consistent with uh, they were consistent with each other and consistent with the physical evidence. Uh, in other words, that's what when the car lurched forward, that's why it turned the way it did. Uh, that's when he came in contact with uh, innocent bystander and just a complete accident. It's kind of nice when you had the video to do a lot of the the speaking and arguing for you. And I, yeah, I don't know that we'd have been in anywhere near as strong a position without the video. The, the video of him surrounded by a circle of individuals who are punching and kicking him. Uh, you know, I played that three or four times. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like almost a scene out of a movie um, yeah. where, you know, they portray people being attacked by, you know, when you drive into the like the wrong neighborhood kind of thing. So you submit the case to the jury. Um, how long do they deliberate for? They were out three and a half hours, I think. So not not terribly long. Uh, you know, I always feel if it's a if it's 20 minutes, that's a guilty verdict. Um, and three to four hours probably favors the defense and any longer it's a toss up. Uh, so when they came back at three, you know, three and a half hours, I felt halfway decent about that walking into the courtroom. And what were their verdicts as to the two remaining charges? Yeah, not guilty on both. Hey, Freedom <laughs> Friday, let's go! Right? Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, fantastic. I've, uh, like I said, I've been a trial lawyer for thirty-two years. Uh, I've never cried after a verdict. Um, but when I walked out of the courtroom and my wife and my daughter were waiting on me, I, I lost it. I mean, this, the, yeah. my client and his family had kind of become family to me For sure. over the course of three years walking through this the, this battle with them. Uh, and it was such a huge relief to see just the, you know, the justice system work. Justice was served. This was not a murder. It was not an aggravated battery. He didn't do it on purpose. It was an accident. That is a fantastic, fantastic result. And and with yeah. your client being out of custody, it just makes it even sweeter that you get to do that Hollywood type scene where you win the case <laughs> and get to walk out of the courtroom with your client, you know, because when your client's in custody, <laughs> even when you win the case, you don't get to do that. So uh, I had the, I had I right, had that right, visual you know, afterwards. I had that visual of you with just <laughs> congratulations. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. He he told me later, he's like, Man, I wanted to kiss you so bad. <laughs> 
Wow, what a what an amazing trial breakdown, Mark. I, I really appreciate you uh, spending that time and giving all of that education and importance into why we have the systems and and resources that we do as it relates to the criminal justice system and to having uh, defense attorneys like you and myself in it and to fight back against the narrative of you know. I understand that, like you you said at the same time, like this this justice and this victory for your client um, is, in my opinion, mutually exclusive from the tragedy and the horrible event of the life lost, regardless of their involvement in the brawl or not, and, and to the injury of the individual, right? You, you can have both things be true at the same time, and one shouldn't necessarily be directly related to the other uh, for good or bad. And so I think that, that does, uh, this trial breakdown has done an amazing job of highlighting that. It really was. I mean, I talked to the jury a lot in jury selection about just because there a tragedy occurred doesn't mean a crime happened. You explained to us how you have, you know, over 20 years of lawyering, over 150 jury trials. I, I think you are a very appropriate guest to ask our signature question on the podcast. And, and that is, what is the significance of taking matters to the box? The significance is that it, when it works, it renders justice, right? The outcome of this process was justice. And if it was left just to a prosecutor, would we have had a just result in this case? Absolutely not. I mean, they they never were willing to entertain the fact that they had made an error in overcharging this case. It, it never, never were they seemingly at least uh, in their in their conversations with me, I don't know what happened behind closed doors, but in their conversations with me, they were never willing to truly entertain the fact that they'd made a mistake here. And without the opportunity to present the entire case and to show a jury, twelve people picked from the from the community, both sides of the story, uh, you never end up with with a just result. I love that. And I love that justice was done in this case. Uh, and again, I, I wanted to thank you for your time, your knowledge and your experience. I know I learned a lot. I'm hopeful that my members of the jury audience has learned a lot. Um, and we wish you the best of luck in any future endeavors that you have when taking matters to the box. Yeah, same to you. Keep up. Uh, keep up the good fight. jury that's our show and i rest my case be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box if you're a fan of the show go ahead and subscribe you can also find us on social media at members of the jury if you want to be a guest or have any feedback be sure to email us at lhursty at members of the jury podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.